Hello and welcome to Girls That Invest. You're joined today by Sim and with me is a very special guest. Today we are lucky enough to have Rachel Lim, the co-founder of Love Benito, all the way from Singapore and honestly it was a pretty amazing episode. Now, Rachel Lim launched Love Bonito in 2010. She was in her final year of university and she grew it from a blog selling site with used clothes to one of Southeast Asia's leading online retailers focused on women wear. She's a Forbes 30 under 30 and in 2018, Love Bonito raised $13 million in CB funding. Honestly, we have had the privilege of meeting Rachel before. When we were growing, we once did a Investing 101 workshop for her community, and she truly is a gem and an inspiration, and probably one of my idols. So without further ado, and without any bias whatsoever, let's get into the episode. Before we get into the show, a huge thank you to HSBC for powering this week's episode. 80% of money media tell women to spend less and make them feel bad about money, yet more than 67% of women want to learn about their finances and grow their wealth. We are so proud to be partnering with HSBC as they pave the way for financial well-being and diversity, which aligns with our mission of empowering women. An integral part of HSBC's mission is to empower and support each customer with their unique wealth needs, whenever and wherever they are. So whether you're at the very beginning of your wealth creation phase and taking your first steps in investing, or you're starting to think about passing your wealth and values to the next generation, HSBC can connect you to global opportunities at every stage of your wealth journey. Jump onto the link in the description to find out more. All right, back to the show. So Rachel, thank you again for coming in. We're so excited to have you. Now, for the background, now we have given our listeners a little bit of an update, but in your own words, what was it like growing up and how did that kind of impact your journey as an entrepreneur? Were you the kid that would like, you know, sell candies at school and try and find, you know, the ways to to grow your business skills? What was that like? You know, growing up in Singapore, I think, and I grew up, you know, in a middle-income family. And, you know, along the way, my family went through bankruptcy as well. So that was also something that opened up my eyes to a lot, especially when it came to money and financial literacy and wellness. So I think we can share more about that later. But I think growing up, you know, with two brothers at the middle child was really exciting in a sense where, you know, we're always looking for different ways to have extra pocket money, be it, you know, selling even like erasers in schools or, you know, finding different ways to be creative with, you know, our pre-loved stuff at home. So I think that was also really and quite an exciting time where looking back now, I think I was honing my skill of being a salesperson. And I really enjoyed that even at the tender age of like eight years old and all that. So yeah. It's something that we've seen a lot with entrepreneurs. Like the little, it's never like, you know what, I woke up and I was 25 and I wanted to start a business. It's always like, since I was a child, there's been this like voice in me. And so from that stage where you were doing those things, how did that then translate into this amazingly successful business that you have now? Like, how did you get from you know, where you were when you were eight years old to the point where we're at now? Yeah, that's an interesting question because looking back, I think, you know, even how Love Bonito started was really because a couple of my friends and I came together when we were in 
junior college, right? And we just wanted to also find ways to earn some extra pocket money. So what we did was we took our pre-loved clothes, clothes that we couldn't fit in anymore, wouldn't wear anymore. This was 17 years ago, way before social media existed, before iPhones or any smartphones existed. What we did was, you know, we would take our pre-loved clothes, uh, use cameras, shoot them, put them up online. Back then, it was a live journal platform which was kind of like the eBay of Singapore. So that was what we did, you know, to put them up for sale online. And that, that was when we started to realize that, oh my God, that, you know, as online shopping was just in its nascent stages, this is something that is really exciting both for us as the sellers and both for, you know, our customers as the buyers to be able to, you know, have the excitement and thrill of, you know, paying for something online and then, you know, receiving it like, four or five days later in their mailbox. So even then, the modes of payment were so different. Today, we're so used to, you know, very, very seamless internet banking, right? Or even like credit card payments. Back then, how our customers would wire money to us was really through either ATM transfers, a machine, transfer money, take the receipt, scan it over to us, and, you know, we would then verify it manually or we would, you know, attach cash in an envelope, snail mail it to us. So that was really the early <laughs> days of how it started. And after a while of doing that, you know, um, selling our pre-love clothes online, we realized that, oh my gosh, we ran out of clothes to sell, but people kept coming back for more. So we decided to use the money that we had saved to go overseas, you know, during school term breaks or weekends to go to places like Bangkok to import clothes to sell. So that was how it was for a couple of years. And, you know, I've always realized that there was something missing from the market uh, that really, in, in a world of fashion, no one was really catering or creating for the Asian woman, right? And, you know, back then when I, while importing, I was always, you know, thinking to myself, I wish I could change certain details about this product, be it the quality, the fit, the color, the design. So in my final year of university with no fashion, no business, no design background, I decided to drop out of school to co-start the business uh, with my co-founders. And yeah, so I having the rest is history. La Bonito is now turning 13 this year. So yeah, it's been a really, really exciting journey that really started from, you know, sort of like a passion project of selling pre-loved clothes online in the very beginning. That is amazing for a number of reasons. One being, I think one of the first people to see the importance of like sustainability and, and kind of, you know, reselling clothes that was like pioneering the fact that you've got like people sending money through snail mail. Like what a time to be alive. Imagine that today. It would not have worked today. That's so amazing. I wanted to ask, you know, talking about money and, and the ability to use our income or capital to grow brands or, you know, take such a punt. I've heard a, a rumor that you, you had to like, you know, get a little bit of help with what's coming up with that money because, you know, you're a student. You don't just have that sitting around. So how did that happen? You're exactly right. I forgot that chapter in my story to share. So what happened, Sim, was actually that because I was bonded to the government, I had to pay off a sum of money to the government to break the bond to come out to start the business. Mm -hmm. So the sum of money that I had to take a loan for from my mom wasn't even capital for the business. It was to pay off the government the bond that I had. 
So it was a five-figure sum of money in US dollars. And uh, I obviously didn't have that sum of money. It, this was, I think, in 2009, 2008. And um, I remember there was a financial crisis. My dad was going through bankruptcy. My mom was already working two jobs to support the family and pay off the debts. And I remember going to her and I had no other choice. I had to ask her, you know, if she could loan me that sum of money so that I could stop school and start an online business. Back then, you know, entrepreneurship first and foremost wasn't like what it is today. You know, no one had heard of like, you know, people dropping out of school to start their businesses or even coming out of school to start any business. And secondly, online shopping was still in its early nascent stages in Singapore at least, right? My mom was really worried. She was asking me, will the authorities come after you? Why are people wiring you money before they receive their goods? Is what you're oh. doing legal, you know? So those were the early days. And even then, you know, she ultimately decided to loan me that sum of money, which I only realized a while later was actually her entire life saving. So I, I guess, you know, I am forever grateful and indebted to my mom um, for that leap of faith that she took with me that, you know, resulted in her also eventually taking up a third job during the weekends to also help, you know, pay off the bills and things like that. So yeah, that was really how it was then. And I guess that was also one of the reasons that drove me to really ensuring that, you know, I would give my 110% to this business to ensure that it would work out. That is very inspiring and, and so kind of her. I don't know if I would give my entire life savings to my kid if they came up to me. <laughs> they know, I know. I actually, yeah, I don't know what made her take that leap of faith. It must have been so scary for her too, right? But yeah, I, I'm so grateful that she did. Sort of getting more into your childhood and what that was like growing up, how was your relationship with money as a kid? You know, it sounds like you've given us some context where your parents were clearly hard workers, but were they savers? Were they spenders? Did you grow up watching them being a certain way and did that influence you as you grew older? So looking back, you know, I mean, everything that we observe from our parents and even our growing up years influenced the way Consciously or unconsciously influenced the way we view life at different aspects of life. So for me, my dad, you know, he was a spender. My mom has always been a saver. In, in that aspect, I have also learned the importance of saving from my mom. But I think as with maybe most traditional families then, I think we were very aware of the importance of saving, but not so much aware about the importance of investing, right? So mm. we were good with money, but maybe not smart with the money that we had. So I think there was something that I, was something new to me investing along the way when I grew up and I heard a lot about it. And even in my growing up years, I've always thought that, oh, investing is for me only when I earned a certain amount of money, you know, mm. or it's usually like, a man's wall, you know, and, and I never really thought that I could and, you know, should be educated in that sense. So that's why, you know, Steve, you know, I reached out to you even recently after, you know, running my business for the last decade. I'm still trying to get better and be more financially literate in this aspect, right? It's still something I'm learning and growing in. But I think for me, growing up, I was exposed to, you know, the importance of saving, but I wish I had known a lot more about, you know, the importance of investing, that it can start even, you know, 
when we are very young, we don't have to have a certain amount of money to, to be able to start investing and growing our money. So I think that was something that, yeah, I wish I had known earlier. We always give ourselves a lot of grief for not knowing these things quicker. And then I always remind myself, like, women weren't able to get credit cards until like 1974. So that was our mother's, or for some of us, our grandmother's era. And so, of course, we wouldn't have learned about investing because they were busy trying to get even the basics. And so, of course, now it's our generation that's getting the more finer details. But it's interesting how, you know, we've been kept out of the financial loop for so long. Growing up in Singapore, did you find that the way that money was viewed was different to, I guess, like the Western lens of looking at money or wealth creation? I think generally speaking, in Asia, we tend to be a lot more um, conservative, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Especially when it comes to money, you know, like you said, I think during our grandparents and maybe even some of us, our parents' time, really the way we view money is like, oh, you know, it's it's always important to save a certain percentage of your money, like 20% of your income. And how we view savings is, Sometimes not like the way growing up, you know, we hear about saving is like our grandmothers would put our their savings in a biscuit tin or hide mm. it under pillows. Yes, <laughs> it, you know, it's those kind of thinking that we have when it comes to like even money and saving. So it wasn't until you know, like growing up, being exposed to a lot more uh, different ways of thinking, you know, in Asia and outside of Asia, like you said, in the Western world, that really opened up my mind to you know, being more educated when it comes to money. And I think for sure in a lot of aspects, right, the Western world actually are a lot more advanced when it comes to issues like that. And you see also a lot of like women standing up, talking a lot more about money. For me, I was exposed to that on social media in the Western world. So I think that was also something that sparked my interest and really taking control of for both myself and my generation of women and that's why I'm so grateful also, Sim, for what uh, you know you do with Girls That Invest that I myself have personally learned a lot from. And you know, having you come on board to my platform and community to speak up, to speak and share more with us has also really at least, you know, planted a seed somewhere in us to also allow us to, you know, expand our minds a lot more in this topic. Oh, I love that. Would you say that, you know, when you were sort of growing up and you were educating yourself on you know the personal finance and savings aspect were there any just revelations that really opened your eyes up to finance or tech was there anything that just like was a light bulb moment that's so basic right and it's like maybe a no-brainer to everyone but when I was younger uh like I said earlier I think when I was like maybe 20 years old right one of my cousins came up to me and she said, have you ever thought of investing? And to me, I was like, no way. I haven't even, you know, like have a stable job, have a proper income back then. No, I was still, you know, just having a passion project on the side while still trying to study. And to me, I was like, no, shouldn't I wait till maybe like when I'm 35, I've had a stable income. And then she was like, actually, you can start wherever you are as long as you have uh, any input of money coming in. You can apportion part of it to investing. But that was where the conversation ended. And, all, and I, I didn't also take it seriously because growing up, I was never exposed to that, the notion of that, you know, being able to firstly invest and secondly being able to invest 
starting where we are. So I think that was something that really also slowly opened up my mind to wanting to read up more about it, you know, like, oh, is it really possible to grow my money? Or should I not only start investing once I have like a comfortable salary? But of course, you know, the goalpost keeps getting further. So I think that for me was a light bulb moment that we can and should start where we are. We don't have to wait till like we strive to hit, you know, a certain amount of income before we start. So that for me was the beginning and an eye opener for me. Where would you say, like, now that things have changed, and and this is quite a personal question, but how do you manage your wealth now? I mean, it must have been such a journey from hearing that for the first time to all the success you've had since then. Do you have, like, uh, like, do you sit down with an advisor once a year or do you kind of manage everything your own and use, you know, software to do that? Yeah, you know, I'll be the first to raise my hand and say, you know, a lot of people think, oh, as an entrepreneur, shouldn't you be the most savvy with your money? <laughs> and oh my gosh, Sam, I will just tell you very honestly, it's still something I have, you know, my relationship with the money, you know, from the very beginning is more like we're strangers, you know, we're still trying to get to know each other. And I would say I am, you know, at least trying my best to take active steps to get better in this aspect or improve it's my relationship with money over the years so for me i think i honestly also because of the work that i do i usually you know this is unfortunately for the longest time not been on my priority list so i've always you know put it on the back burner and i always think that okay when i have time i will do it but i never ever have time so i started to speak to certain friends you know like you know different friends who are you know a a little bit more uh, obviously a a lot better in this aspect of financial um wellness and who, who could help me a little bit and start introducing different people or different platforms to me and that was when i also realized that well, whatever lifestyles, no matter how busy we are, there will be something that will be suitable or comfortable for us. So for me, in this in this season of my life, you know, I have someone who helps me or helps take a look at, you know, how much I earn, how much is necessary spending, how much I can afford to, you know, put into like investments and what kind of investment, what's my risk appetite. All these things were new to me and even just like five years ago. So I think that is something that has been very helpful for me personally, someone to help me and genuinely cares for me enough to look at this for me. And I meet him like twice a year to go through and to to run through, you know, how portfolios are doing. So I think this has been something that's been very helpful for me because I don't have that interest or capacity of time to be able to, you know, monitor my investments on like a daily or even monthly basis. So I think that for me is comfortable enough for me at this stage. And I'm also trying to look to see how else, especially now with like added responsibilities in my life, like having a child, you know, taking care of my elderly parents who have also retired, my parents-in-law have retired. So also looking at how I can be even smarter uh, with my money uh, to be able to also support them and maybe, you know, even provide for them 
in the event one day there might be a rainy day so yeah this is a bit of a tangent but you brought up something that was really interesting and something that we don't talk a lot especially within like the western lens of financial literacy but the idea of taking care of our parents financially was that a decision that you made and you just kind of knew that was what you were going to do or was that something that you decided recently was a responsibility you wanted to take up you know, here in, in Asia, for most of us, there is this also notion that when we start working as children, we would give a percentage of our income to our parents. Have you heard of that? Yes. yes. Something that's very common for us. We grew up with it. We, we never thought twice about it. It's just something we did because we thought, well, it was the right thing to do. So with, you know, growing up with that mindset, naturally, you know, as we grow older as kids, we also find different ways to also provide for our family, to kind of like give back to our parents for one of the sacrifices that they have made for us, you know, while we were growing up as well. So I think that is something that is ingrained in most of us Asians and there is no right or wrong, but, but for those of us who continue to want to, you know, show filial piety to our parents through continuing to take care of them financially. I think this is something that we also think about, like, you know, I know a lot of my friends and I, we, like, you know, we pay for our parents' health insurance. We take care of them in that sense. So, especially when it comes to, like, retirement, especially for my parents who are still, you know, working in their 60s. And for me, it's also, like, how can I also, in whatever means possible, provide them with a more comfortable life and I think that's something that we think a lot about. And therefore, like, you know, when there's investments, insurance, uh, we also find ways that we can take care of them through these aspects. It's very beautiful. And it's one of my favorite parts of, you know, being part of the Asian culture. I remember when I got my first paycheck, I gave it all to my parents because that was just, you know, what you would do. It's, it's like a, a small thank you. Unfortunately, my parents just transferred the money bank to me into <laughs> my account. They were like, we don't need this, like take it back. <laughs> well, clearly it wasn't going to do anything for them, but you know, it's, it's a beautiful part of it. I wanted to move into your amazing work with the brand that you own because, you know, it is absolutely phenomenal what you have achieved and seeing the growth that it has had, you know, year on year through the years that we've been watching it. For people that are listening in and thinking, you know what, I want to get into e-commerce. I think it is a place that has still a lot of growth. You know, maybe they didn't start 17 years ago, but it's still a place that is adapting and changing. What would be your financial tips that you have for them? Yeah. So I think for me, I've always known that, you know, when I started the business, this is one aspect, like the financial aspect of the business. Uh, as founders and as leaders of the company, we need to be able to have a decent, you know, understanding and foundation of, you know, the financial aspect of the business. But for me, it is not something that I am naturally very adept at or naturally very good at. So I struggle a lot more with that aspect. Hence, I think my advice would be self-awareness is super key when it comes to running a business or doing anything at night. And so for me, I knew from the get-go, I knew early on the kind of people I needed to surround myself with, especially in areas where I lack, so that they could come in to compliment me. So for me personally, and with a lot of also a lot of different founders uh, and women founders that I speak to, you know, this is one area that we are not as confident in or not naturally inclined towards. 
So I think it's important to then rather bring on board someone can help you, that you can trust and bring on board to help you in this financial aspect. And at the same time, you know, do our part by continuously growing. And or like for me, I take up certain causes on the side or I read up a lot more in these aspects as well. So help me at least, you know, become a little bit better in this aspect. So I think that's where I would say, you know, know what your strengths and weaknesses are. Be very self-aware. And you know, you know, then it will lead you to really knowing what kind of people to bring on board to help you. Oh, that is so good. That's, I mean, when you say it, it's like, yeah, of course, that makes so much sense. Why didn't I think of that? But sometimes you just have to hear it from someone that's been there, done that. Yeah, and it's something where you know, I've also realized that there are a lot of people, women included, who are very, very savvy in this aspect, who are very literate and educated in the financial aspect. So for me, it's also, you know, while I continue to grow in my financial literacy, it's also bringing on this like experts or these people who are naturally already so excited, get so excited and obsessed with this subject to come in to help you with it at the same time. So I think that has been also game-changing for me. Uh, a mindset that has been game-changing for me as I grow my business through the different stages as well. So yeah, being very self-aware, recognizing areas that we need help in and then bringing the right people on board to do this together with us. Because like what you shared, Sim, you mentioned about, you know, like how Le Punido has, you know, really grown through the years. I will also want to say that I could have never done it without my team. So I think it's really important to also recognize as founders, as business people, you know, where our superpowers are and then what kind of people we need to bring on board with us to make a strong team. See, I love interviewing female founders because they say things like this. And when you talk to other people, let's say, it's like, I did it on my own. I hustled. I woke up at 5 a.m. and that is why I succeeded. And it's like, well, that's not relatable. But (laughs) I appreciate the honesty. (laughs) (laughs) The real talk. Sort of getting into the technology side of it, because that's still quite like misunderstood by a lot of people. How do you see technology supporting women in, you know, entrepreneurship and the wealth management side of what you do? Yeah, I think in terms of like technology helping the businesses, there's so much, right? I think in today's landscape, technology can really provide very reliable solutions to businesses, which I am so grateful for, to really provide for us, right? Uh, Technology has helped us a lot with like very actionable insights, automation of processes and ways to scale. So, for example, like, you know, through machine learning, you know, it has also really helped us with actionable insights. Like, based on machine learning, we're also able to, for example, have a better prediction of the quantity that we want to produce for a certain style. Oh. You know, based on the data that is collected on past behavior from our customers, you know, that has also helped us to ensure that we try our best not to underproduce or overproduce, right? So, for example, if a product goes out of stock, we will then, you know, quickly reproduce the design again to ensure that, you know, we don't just have overproduction and too much inventory at the end of the day, which can also, you know, lead to waste sometimes. And I think this is something because I think like machine learning and, and all this data has also helped us because we have like an in-house data team that constantly monitors, you know, the winning designs, designs that don't do as well. Uh, and we have like thousands of product attributes that we have collected over the years thousands of like customer insights that we've collected over the years which helps us you know in this sense and this is where technology really is very helpful for us as businesses when it comes to like 
automation of like payment processes, right? Customers who started out with us in the very early days will know how difficult it is, like even being able to wire money safely and quickly. So I think this is something that, you know, with technology today, it's really just a pick up a button. You know that well, generally it is a high chance that it's safe, it's efficient, it's quick. And I think that has changed so much even in the last decade. When it comes to scaling, um, technology has also helped our business in terms of like via our e-commerce platform. Uh, we're also able to, you know, scale internationally, even beyond markets that we would otherwise be able to reach without you know, different e-commerce platforms as well. So for example, I think for us, you know, with, with the use of technology has also helped us to reach like markets that we would not be able to traditionally as businesses, like maybe even like the US or even nearer to us, like Hong Kong, Philippines, where traditionally you needed to physically be there to grow the business. But today, of course, with technology, social media, everything, you know, we're able to, you know, be able to similarly reach a lot a much wider audience so yeah that's fantastic would you say that all that data and information is what led you to deciding to open up brick and mortar stores because that has been something that we've seen with a few businesses like for those listening at home you might have heard of oscar wiley or you might have heard of other glasses brands like warby parker began online grew so big and then they decided well actually we need to be in physical places as well so what was the sort of thought process behind that yeah, you know, when we first started Sim uh, in 2010, that was just the beginning of really the online world opening up for us, right? Obviously, because we just started our business as, you know, a group of like uh, out-of-school women, right? We naturally also did not really have the capital to, you know, invest in a brick-and-mortar store. Even though most of us back then, even ourselves, you know, the way we consume products was almost primarily offline in physical stores. Mm -hmm. So unlike most of our peers in the retail industry, we actually started online, right? We were digitally native. And over the years, we realized that, hey, there might be some benefits. We didn't know that, but we were thinking to ourselves, there might be some benefits having physical presence or having physical interactions with our customers and allowing them to have physical interactions with us. So what we did was, you know, like maybe once or twice a year, we would try pop-up stores over like three months, six months in different parts of Singapore to really test the market, to really see how it's like having a physical presence, having a physical touch point for our customers to also get to know us, kind of like as a marketing channel, to trust us before also, you know, then journeying with us online. I think the notion today of online shopping comes so naturally to us. Like we don't ever think twice. But when we first started, it was something so new. People didn't really trust us. And especially when it comes to like fashion, people were always wary about like sizes, quality, fit. How do I know what's the right fit or size for me? So we realized that there was a lot of benefits that would come with having a physical presence for our business. And one thing that we realized is also that, you know, through our pop-up stores, we realized that, hey, it's so interesting, you know, online, you know, we can track the data of what's selling, what's not selling. But it's only through a physical interaction with our customers that we realize, oh, why this is selling and why this is not selling. You know, you get to talk to them, understand, you know, understand why even though they bring a certain product to a fitting room, they come out not wanting to purchase it. So mm -hmm. it's the additional insights that we get through the physical interactions with our customers that we realize, wow, 
it's so valuable for the company as a whole in order for us to grow and produce even better products and experiences for our customers. So that was something that we realized is a two-pronged approach that can be very valuable for us. And I think at the end of the day, we believe in being where our customers are at. And the truth is, they are omni, they're shopping and they are omni-channel, right? They are both online and they are also offline. So I think for us, you know, it's like having a different point of view of like, viewing like the, the importance of physical presence and online presence and we are so grateful to have been able to you know kind of like be early adopters in like the only channel world that has also proven to be very valuable for us which is why you know finally we had the confidence to take a leap of faith in 2017 to open up our very first physical permanent retail store in Singapore in the heart of Orchard Road which during that time you know we got a lot of like backlash and like doctors telling us mm. that, oh, why? Wow, that's just simo. Everyone's trying to move out of retail. <laughs> retail is dead, you know. Why do you bother killing yourself with such heavy overcost and things like that? So mm. I think we are, we are so grateful to ultimately, you know, be able to test and learn along the way and then make very calculated bets. It definitely seems like choice and convenience is, you know, very high up on on your customers' needs. And I have to say it's heartwarming to hear all the behind the scenes around how seriously you take their information that they have. Even, you know, someone coming out with a rack and saying, I just didn't like, you know, that didn't fit well on me. I'll put that back. The, the fact that that's feedback that is actioned on speaks volumes as to why Love Benito is so successful Sort of circling it back to the financial world, and this can be controversial as you'd like it to be, but do you see choice and convenience or the impacts of it being spilled over into financial services and banking? Do you think there's things that we could do you know, in this space to improve it for customers in the same way that you've absolutely found how we can improve it you know, in retail? Yeah, hmm. that's a great question. So like for us, right, I think we saw the benefits of being omni-channel and the benefit of omni-channel having an online and offline presence and the importance of catering to consumers via their preferred choice as well as the convenience that it brings during the pandemic, right? At the height of the pandemic, even just like two years ago, we've been able to be agile and relevant in a time especially where, you know, obviously all the retail physical stores had to be shut we were also able to, you know, redirect resources and adjust our footprint and inventory, transfer the stocks, you know, offline to online to then push to sell it then. So I think that was something, you know, that was very, very helpful and valuable to us. And secondly, also because of our direct-to-consumer, vertically integrated nature, that was how we started, where we have full control of our value chain. We have also therefore been able to adjust and refine our assortment and the products according to the changing consumer behavior. So for example, during pandemic, right, we were able to pivot to producing more loungewear, casual wear versus workwear. Mm-hmm. Um, we also understood, you know, and you know, that our community, you know, back then uh, during COVID were at home juggling multiple roles, yet also needing to look smart and show up in Zoom meetings. And we were able to provide them with the relevant assortment and products to be able to cater to them. 
So I think ultimately in Lepanijo, we believe that the future of retail is not just online or offline, but really at the end of the day, it's the integration of both. Customers at the end of the day, especially today, expect convenience. But we believe that what they also crave is really connection and that sense of community that is also available both online and offline, not just in one channel. So, you know, whether you're in e-commerce or have a physical retail store, customers are more discerning than ever. And we believe that a brand's values and purpose will have to, you know, ultimately also resonate with the customer's personal beliefs. So, yes, I think like for like the spillover to like financial services like banking, similar concepts will apply since more consumers today are expecting, you know, ease and convenience of maybe like banking at their fingertips. So definitely, I think as an entire mindset shift for consumers, um, it has really changed tremendously over the last decade. Oh, that is honestly the most perfect way to wrap this up. I think we have been so privileged to have your time. We know exactly how busy you are. So thank you so much, Rachel, for coming on, sharing not just your personal story, but so many great business insights. I feel inspired. I'm sure all of our listeners are as well, as well as the banking industry. There's a lot we can all learn from in the way that you practice business. So thank you again so much for your time. And if we want to hear more about you, where can we find you? Oh, thank you, Sam, firstly, you know, for also taking the time to speak with me and for the work that you do I really think that it's really transforming lives and you know as I, I truly believe that you know when especially in the time today where women are having more power in decisions at home as well as at work I think financial literacy is one huge important aspect that I wish you know um, that we learned about in schools right so I think that's something that's really important I'm trying to back panel down to educate myself more in this area but yeah, I think for me, I am on Instagram. You know, uh, you can find me on Instagram at lovebonito and at miss underscore rich. So yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I really enjoyed this chat. Thank you. And we will link all of Lovebonito's amazing resources down the bottom because it is definitely worth checking out. And thank you again so much, Rachel. Thank you. Before we go, thank you again to HSBC for not only powering this episode, but for the rest of the season. Don't forget to check out the link in the description to find out more. And as always, to finish off with our disclaimer, Girls That Invest does not provide personalized investing advice for your individual needs. We are not financial advisors. The advice from Girls That Invest exists for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision. Advice from Girls That Invest is general in nature and does not consider individual circumstances. Always do your research and please use your due diligence.